So the text is from Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to the end. Let's read that now. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. In response to this sermon, we will voice our amen together afterwards by singing from Psalm 63. And we will sing all the stanzas. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus' parable of the great banquet takes place in the house of a Pharisee, and it's part of a larger dinner party conversation. And the setting is a typical Middle Eastern scene. There's a visiting rabbi coming through town, and the religious leaders invite him to a meal so that they can check out his views. See what this man is all about. Note verse verse 1. They were watching him carefully. They wanted to see if he fit their mold. And of course they found out quickly that he did not. He healed a man who had a serious disease and in that way he challenged their ideas of what is and what is not allowed on the Sabbath day. And then the conversation turned into a lesson on humility. Jesus instructs his host and all the other prominent guests about what kind of people you should invite when you have a banquet. You can imagine that this instruction landed like a lead balloon because as Jesus was talking, these men would have been looking around and there's nobody there who fits the bill except for this man who was healed, but he was sent away. And then after what is, was likely several moments of embarrassed silence, one of the guests speaks up. Maybe he's trying to bring the conversation around to something more comfortable, something more orthodox, something that religious leaders can discuss politely. Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And he said this in response to everything he had just heard. And in response to Jesus' last statement, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Keep in mind, they were watching him closely, so this statement was meant to invoke Jesus' views on the matter. 
What does Jesus think about the kingdom of God and the messianic banquet? Well, the Jews understood at the end of history, the final fulfillment of the kingdom of God would be a banquet with the Messiah, the messianic banquet, described in Isaiah chapter 25. The banquet which New Testament believers know as the marriage feast of the Lamb, Revelation 19. And perhaps those men at the dinner table with Jesus, with their typical pharisaical attitudes, expected Jesus to say something, well, that's very good. That's good. How wonderful it would be if if we all lived according to God's law in such a way that, that everyone would be worthy of being seated at the banquet of the Messiah. And then all the guests would have thought, wonderful, we have an Orthodox rabbi in our midst. That's great. But once again, they did not get the response that they expected. Jesus once again destroys the fortress of religious formalism and hypocrisy, just as he had so often done already. Just look at the previous chapter. Right? He tells the people, strive to enter through the narrow gate, the narrow door, and many will seek to enter, but they will not be able to. And he warns that once the master of the house has shut the door, it will be too late, even though if you knock and you say, we ate and drank in your presence, he will say, I did not know you. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that that being familiar with the Bible and familiar with Jesus and knowing about Jesus, that is not your ticket to the banquet. You may be religious, you may have the right theology, you may know a lot of right things, you may be a member of the church in good standing, that's not your ticket to the banquet. And if you think along these lines, says Jesus, here's a story for you. There was a man who gave a banquet and invited many guests. Now in the Eastern custom, it was... It was the custom to first send out a general invitation to all the guests that you wanted to invite. And then when the banquet was ready, you sent out your servant to knock on everybody's door and say, the banquet is ready. Everything's ready. Come. So first, like, maybe like a save the date card and then come. And of course, Jesus is talking about the very feast mentioned by this outspoken guest. And his listeners understood that the invitations have been sent out. God, via his Old Testament prophets, he has sent out the invitations. We read that from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, remember those two words, for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Or think of Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So the Old Testament describes a feast that will include all the Gentile nations. What is so sad, however, is that the Jews in Jesus' day had lost this vision of the Old Testament prophets. It's clear from extra-biblical writings as well, such as the Jewish Targum, which is a kind of a commentary translation of the Old Testament, and also from writings of the Essenes, a group of religious group that lived in those days. Some of their writings were found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
And the Jews believed, and now I quote, that only the chiefs of Israel would sit before the Messiah in the order of their dignity, according to his place. And there would be no place for anyone, and I quote again, who is smitten in his flesh or paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or dumb. Isaiah's beautiful vision had been warped. And Jesus has something very different to say about this anticipated celebration. Again, referring to chapter 13, right? He speaks of those who come from north and south and east and west. They will eat and drink with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and with the prophets of the Old Testament in the kingdom of God. And furthermore, the first will be last and the last will be first. Some of those who are religiously respectable will be denied entry. Why? Because they failed to accept the invitation. They failed to come when called. And the excuses, just look at the excuses. They seem so reasonable and even polite, don't they? These are not the excuses of the guy who gets sloshed every Friday night. These are not the excuses of the woman who is on her third relationship and has four children out of wedlock. No, these guys are very polite. But their excuses hold no water. I mean, who inspects a field and a yoke of oxen after he buys it? That's like telling your wife, honey, I just bought a house on the internet. Let's go have a look at it. No self-respecting Jew or Dutchman, for that matter, would ever do that. You check it out before you buy it. And the third excuse is just that. And it's, it's, it's an offensive excuse, even. He doesn't even ask to be excused. I have a wife. I'm busy with her, so I'm not coming to your banquet. Now, of course, now, now it's about us, right? Because this parable wasn't just meant for the Jews or for the people sitting with Jesus at this banquet. This parable challenges us, too. Where is your heart? Do your possessions occupy your heart? Do your fields and your house and your car and your cottage and your vacation Does that occupy all of your time and your thoughts and your energy? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And of course, nobody is going to deny the value of church membership. But are we willing to give our time and our money and effort to be living members of the church? And then there are those who say, I have a career, I have a life to take care of. Sometimes ambition stands between us and our relationship with the Lord. How many people allow their work and their business pursuits to occupy all their time and energy? And and what's the addition of five yoke of oxen to your prestige and, and status compared to your relationship with the Lord? And then there are others who put family and relationships ahead of the Lord. And right after this parable, Jesus Jesus says later in this chapter, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
So the bottom line here is that all these excuses indicate an indifference toward God, an indifference toward salvation, and an indifference toward the spiritual things in life. Behind this this thin veneer of excuses lies a belief that this world and this life has more to offer than God does. This world and this life has more exciting things and more profitable ventures to offer than the kingdom of God. It's no wonder the master becomes angry at these flimsy excuses. But note well what he does. Note his his reaction. He has every right to retaliate and, and punish those those people who made those flimsy excuses because they, be, they, they attacked his personal honor and they did it publicly, but that's not what happens. Instead, he creates another option. He channels his anger into grace. He turns this insult into grace. He orders his servant to go into the streets and the back alleys of the town and, and call in the blind and the lame, right? and the crippled and the poor, the very people whom the Pharisees despised. Well, Jesus is referring here to the outcasts of Israel, the common people, the ones who loved to hear him preach, the crowds at whom the leaders of the Jews sneered. These are the crowds that don't know the law and they are cursed. That's why they're following Jesus. But these are the folks that are welcome to the banquet. Even though they're not worthy to be seated with such a wealthy host and they can never pay him back. And and then the servant has done his master's bidding and the banquet hall is still not full so the master says, go back out there. And now, now go out of town, go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Go and find more people. Compel them, convince them to come in. And you're going to have to convince them because they're the kind of people that will find it very hard to believe that they can actually get an invitation. They're the down and out, the homeless, the poor, the ones who live far away from this wealthy nobleman. They have no reason whatsoever to believe that they would ever get an invitation. And so the messenger will need a special way to to convince such outsiders that they are indeed invited to the banquet. So what's the point here? The point is that this is the way God works. He works entirely differently than what you would expect. He removes names from the list, the names of those who who have their wear their smug religiosity and their selfish and complacent attitudes, but he adds others to the list who are the most unlikely people to show up. God prepares a banquet. And he sends out invitations. And admission to the banquet is free. Because Christ has paid the admission fee. But so many people are way too busy to pay attention to the invitation. And they're way too preoccupied with other things. And they place way more value on the kingdom of earth than on the kingdom of heaven. And so they are excluded from the banquet. The ones who are excluded are the ones who have received and rejected the invitation. 
It's true. You can only come to the banquet if you're invited. But the only reason you're not allowed in is if you reject the invitation. Jesus said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And yes, it's clear that there's a hierarchy to the invitation. The invitation comes first to the privileged The ones who have the privilege of being in the covenant, of hearing the word, who have sat under the preaching of God's word, who from their youth have been taught in the doctrine of the church. But the warning comes first of all to those very same people. Because who are the ones in the parable who reject the invitation? They're the members of the covenant, people of God. They've grown up in the church, they know their Bibles, they know they should know better than to make excuses. They are the ones whose names are taken off the list. And then God turns to the most unlikely people, to the lost sheep of Israel. And when that's not enough to fill the banquet hall, he will go to the Gentiles. Many Pharisees rejected the Lord Jesus. But people like Zacchaeus and Mary and Martha and Salome, out of whom Jesus cast seven devils, they accepted the invitation Or what about the woman at the well, John chapter 4? She's a Samaritan. She has a live-in lover. She's been married six times. But after she meets Jesus, she goes back to town to tell them all about Jesus. Why? Because she has experienced that the water that Jesus gives is the water of life. And her eyes were open to the fact that she's heading down the wrong road. Jesus exposed her heart and gave her living water and she was converted. And the Pharisees sitting at the table, they hear all of this, and one of them says, he puffs out his chest and he looks down his stuck-up religious nose, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Of course, that's true. But he didn't get it. And the implication of the parable is very clear. Those who were expecting to enter the kingdom of God because they had an advanced invitation, they didn't get to go in. They will be absent. And those who never expected to get in because they thought they were never good enough or because they never had an invitation because they were pagans, they are the ones going to the banquet. And when they heard the news, they heard the good news, they came immediately and they came gladly. So again, what's, what is Jesus' point? Well, nothing less than that the gospel goes out to the Jew first and then to the Greek, as Paul writes in his letters too. The gospel will go out to the nations. It comes first to those who should understand it and should believe it, but who reject it. And then the word goes out to others. In the Jewish context, it goes out to tax collectors and sinners. And then after Pentecost, it goes out to the Gentiles, who will be drawn to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the apostles and the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we have to again apply this to ourselves. Is it possible that we are too religiously pompous and arrogant? Is that possible? Who do you think will be invited to the banquet? 
Of course, that will be the good people who go to church, right? Not the woman who's on her third relationship. Not the guy that you work with who gets sloshed every Friday, because that's the only way you can think of to numb his pain. Not the man who's been living on the streets for 10 years with a drug addiction because he can't kick his habit. And we live close to a town that's filled with all kinds of tourists every summer. We know what kind of people they are, right? They don't even know how to say, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. So they're not going to come. They're not going to get an invitation, are they? Wrong. It's a good thing that we don't get to write the invitation list. So let's put the record straight. If God can save me, he can save anyone. And if he can save you, he can save anyone. So who are we to write off anyone as unsavable? And so Jesus says, go out into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. And the truth, if truth be told, congregation, that's the only reason... That command of Jesus, that's the only reason you or I have ever heard the gospel. It's the only reason we have ever heard the invitation because of the gracious reaction of God. Because we are not of Jewish descent. We are of Gentile descent. Our ancestors worshipped Woden and Thor. And they, they killed the first Christian missionary who came to the shores of Europe. Who do we think we are? And so this parable clearly contains a warning that needs to be heeded, a warning to the religious, to those who are familiar with the gospel, familiar with the invitation, and with the things concerning the Son of God. And the warning is this. Do not make the mistake of thinking that the knowledge of Scripture is the same as genuine conversion. And do not make the mistake of thinking that being familiar with what Jesus said is the same as believing in what he did. There's a grave danger that we might be able to say all the right things, go to all the right places, do do many of the right things, but not be empowered by the Holy Spirit and not trust unequivocally in the Lord Jesus. Remember what he said Not everyone who confesses the name of Jesus will be saved. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, being familiar with Christ is not the same as being a follower of Christ. Having a solid theological and biblical background is not the same as having Christ dwell in your heart. Some of us make the mistake of thinking that having grown up in the church, having made a confession of faith, understanding that you've been invited to the feast means that you're going to be there. And you feel so secure in this that you feel free to prioritize other things. Like your possessions and your vacation and your money and your earthly kingdom. And you act as if your money is yours and your possessions are yours. Your job is yours. Your children are yours. Your time is yours to do with as you wish. 
And you give little or no thought to the fact that it's all God's. And you give little thought or regard to the fact that he calls you to use what he gives you for his kingdom and his glory and not for yourself. And so with this parable, Jesus warns us to seriously consider whether or not we have truly accepted the invitation to the feast. But with this parable, he also gives great encouragement. Encouragement for those who have little or no religion. Right? The, the invitation is not for people who love to think of themselves as religious, but the invitation is for people who realize, like the Samaritan woman at the well, I'm on a dead-end road. I've got nowhere to go anymore. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The invitation is for those who... who would never think that they could receive one. But we shouldn't come to the conclusion either that we first have to become clean before we can receive an invitation. We shouldn't think either that we, that we first have to become good enough to receive an invitation. As if we have to reach a certain level of holiness before God will extend the invitation. It doesn't work that way either. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He did not come to save the healthy, but the sick. And people who are clean, they don't feel the need to be washed. But if you know that you are dirty, then you will want to be washed. It's the people who know themselves to be dirty, rotten, stinking sinners who see the need to be forgiven and cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the law of God makes very clear who those people are. Every one of us. We all are in need of cleansing. But by the grace of God, he extends his invitation to dirty people. To people who know they're on a dead-end road of themselves. To people who are at the end of their rope. People who know that they are dirty and they cannot wash themselves. And maybe you're still thinking, well, there's no way I can ever get an invitation. I mean, if people could see past my facade at my smile and they would know the things that I have done in this life, if they would know some of the things that I've thought and said and done, they, they, would, they would think this, this guy shouldn't have gotten an invitation. And of course it's true, you don't deserve an invitation, neither do I. No one deserves it. But that's precisely the point. It's by grace and grace alone that your name is on the invitation list. It's not by merit, it's by grace. And that helps us understand why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. This doctrine of grace is very annoying to religious people like that. It makes them mad. It pulls the rug out from under their self-importance. And that's because they did not understand that the invitation that Christ extends is an invitation to come and die. It's an invitation to, to die to self and to live to God. To lose yourself and find yourself in Him and bow to the King of Kings. And finally, this parable obviously has a missionary thrust to it. The task of this servant who was sent out to the highways and the byways 
This becomes the task of everyone who receives and accepts and responds to the invitation. Because responding to the invitation doesn't mean you get to sit down at the banquet and say, I'm glad I made it. Instead, it should fill us with longing for others to hear the invitation. That's how the woman at the, at the well, the Samaritan woman, responded, right? She was so excited about what she heard, she dropped her, her water bottle, and she ran back to town to tell everybody about Jesus. Is that what we do? Do we disciple? First of all, do we disciple our children and our grandchildren? Is your goal for them that they become disciples of Christ? And what about looking farther outward? Are we content to remain in the safety bubble of our group of friends and our family members and and the church? Do you love your blasphemous co-worker enough to tell them about Jesus? It's not as if we don't know people who don't know Jesus. Are you willing to talk to them? Do you love them enough to get to know them? To befriend your unbelieving neighbor? Because many of them likely don't even think they would ever get an invitation to know Jesus because they think those kinds of invitations are just for people who like going to church. But in the meantime, they are precisely the ones who need an invitation because they don't know who Jesus is. And they never heard a word from Scripture, or if they did, it's out of context. We live in an increasingly pagan society, a society in which most people have not the foggiest notion of who Jesus is, except that they can use his name to swear and curse. And many people think that Christians are just people who go to church and think they're better than everyone else. And sadly enough, that's sometimes even true. But those people have not the foggiest notion of the gospel and they live without purpose and hope. There are funeral homes in our local towns that regularly assist families whose loved ones have died by suicide or assisted suicide. And those numbers are just on the rise. People live in such hopelessness. They see no use for this life and they don't know about a life hereafter. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. We don't just live in a post-Christian society. We live in a pagan society. Most people don't know anything about Jesus or what Christianity is really about or what the gospel is. And they have no idea that true Christians actually love them. So let's show them that love. I'm the first to admit that I could do better at this as well but let's compel them to come in. Let them know about the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of God's mercy and love and grace and compassion. Let them know that God is good. And let them know that Christ has met them in their brokenness because he came to live in it. Let them know that God will use their brokenness and their dirtiness and their messed up lives To bring them to himself. Because that's how he works. Amen.